All right, if you will, please take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter number 6 this evening. I told you last week that the sermon wouldn't be very long, and apparently I lied because it did go long. Not longer than normal, just, I kind of just preach long generally. But um, then today at lunch, I told Amy, I said, you know, tonight's sermon shouldn't be very much. Because what happened was, originally this was supposed to be one sermon. And then it came, it developed into four points. And then I said, well, I'm not even good at preaching three points in an hour, much less four points. So I cut it in half. And then my reasoning was, well, there's only two points. It can't take that long to preach that. And then, sure enough, I stretched it out to 50 minutes last week. And then this week, I told Amy on the way to lunch, I said, you know, uh, I don't think tonight's going to be very long uh, because, you know, it just doesn't have as much meat to it as what last week's did. And uh, then you get to studying and I don't know, it just, there's so much, there's so much in God's word. We could just sit here for hours and hours and hours. And, and man, I'm learning, I don't know, this is just me, but I'm learning. I just want to study God's word. You know, I want to know what it says. And I want to know how I can live as a heavenly, uh, a heaven pleasing Christian in a really wicked society. In an America that just seems to be getting further and further away from God, I need to know what this book says so that I can know how to live for God today. And I don't want to live the life that my dad lived or the faith that my dad lived. I want to live the life that this book wants me to live. And it just so happens that I, the more I study it, the more I believe that Daddy did it right. And so... I just, I just love this book, and so that's my excuse for preaching long this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. I'm just kidding, it shouldn't be that long. Verse number 11, the Bible says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, and godliness, and faith, love, patience, meekness. Verse number 12, we did not get to this last week. This is where we'll kind of resume the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we have together. Lord, please uh, help this sermon to be exactly what you want it to be, nothing more and nothing less. And I pray that you'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started a sermon and it, it was entitled, The Makeup of a Man of God. I read through this passage and the statement, but thou, O man of God, stuck out to me. And that's what I want to be. I want to be a man of God. I have seen, I've been present at many funerals and um, I've heard my dad preach many, many funerals. And there's really a lot that has been said at all those funerals, but I've kind of boiled down what I want to be said at my funeral to two things. Number one, I want someone to say about me that I was a man of God. Because really in this life, there is no higher compliment than that those around you would think that you're a man of God. But even more importantly, that when I get to heaven, God would only reinforce that I was a man of God, that what happened on the outside was taking place on the inside. And I want to be a man of God. The second thing I want to be said is faith. Y'all should be writing these down, okay? I want to be known as a man that was faithful. I want to be faithful. I don't ever want anybody to think that I wasn't 
uh, faithful in what God had called me to do. And I want to be faithful to what God has called me to be. And so as I read this statement, but thou, O man of God, it stuck out to me. And then as I began to think on that, it stuck out to me even more that the great Apostle Paul was writing this to a young man in ministry. And I need that encouragement. And I'm getting less young every day. But I do need the encouragement from seasoned men of God that tell me how to be a man of God. And so this passage stuck out to me. And then I thought, maybe, just maybe, there's somebody crazy enough in our church to desire to hear the same thing that I need to hear. And that's why... I began to study this passage. I think that there's nothing needed more in our church right now than godly men. Godly men that will love the Lord with all their heart and lead their families unashamedly in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's the greatest need of the hour, I believe. And so I think this passage is very appropriate. And last week I told you I didn't want to leave anybody out. And so obviously as the Bible says, but thou, O man of God, not but thou who art becoming a man of God, Timothy in his young age was already a man of God. And Paul was giving him some advice on how to continue his growth and development in that area. So this is not an ageist sermon. You don't have to have gray hair to be a man of God. You can be a man of God even as a young man. I also taught last week that this sermon was not uh, gender related, even though it seems it is at the first sound of it, man of God. We looked in the Bible at 1 Peter chapter 3, which is specifically written to the godly women of the church. And it says, it, it refers to that God was building up the inner man and they were to focus on the inner man. So even ladies can be a man of God. I also asterisked this with, we're not adding any bathrooms in our church. So, just so we're clear. But this sermon, I believe, is for everybody. And last week we talked about how the first recommendation of Paul for Timothy to be a man of God and to have the makeup of a man of God was, number one, found in verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And we looked at those things that we were to flee and we came to the conclusion that it was profane teachings and a profit focus. Profane teachings and a profit focus. Avoid those men that are teaching false doctrine, but even more than that, avoid those men that have an eye to the ministry to teach that somehow uh, being wealthy and having a lot and being successful somehow was directly correlatable to godliness. And that's, Paul says that's not at all the case. For godliness with contentment is great gain, is what the Apostle Paul teaches. And so we're to flee these things, profane teachers and a prophet focus. And then verse number 11 also taught us, not only were we to flee, but another thing in the makeup of a man of God was that we would follow. And the things that we were to follow after, the characteristics that we were to follow after were righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Now we come to verse number 12 this week and we'll see the third uh, uh, thing that makes up the makeup of the man of God. Number three, fight. Now we probably all get a little excited there because we think in our mind, I don't have any trouble fighting for what I believe in. And I, I think that if you believe in something, you ought to be willing to fight for it. It's like the first time my wife And I ever went on a date. I said, where are you from? And she said, North Carolina. And I said, okay. Duke or UNC? 
You know, I mean, we got to be able to fight for what we believe in. And I'm a Duke fan. And she said, University of North Carolina. And you ask her, I turned around and walked away. And then I realized how pretty she was. And I came back about six steps later. So, so, but you ought to be able to fight. You ought to be willing to fight for what you believe in. But when I hear the Bible say, fight. I want to put it into its context because there's a lot of people in life that don't have trouble fighting. Man, if you've been around uh, our faith very long, you'll find that there's a lot of people that are fighting over really pointless things. And then there's even people that are fighting over what I consider like just terrible things. I'm reminded of a Baptist church that goes to the funerals of soldiers and protests them and and carries signs that read, Thank God for dead soldiers. How could this be? Just because you're fighting doesn't mean you're right. So I want to make sure that if I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight for what the Apostle Paul is recommending Timothy fight for. And there are things worth fighting for. I believe you've got to put it into its context. And the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. Now what you have to understand is Timothy was just a young man, a young preacher boy. And if you don't understand what's going on in the book of Ephesians... The Apostle Paul has left him at Ephesians to minister all by himself. Have you ever seen where uh, mama birds will kick their baby bird out of the nest and eventually they're going to have to learn to fly. And this is Timothy's time to fly. And and Paul left him. In fact, if you'll take your Bible to the first chapter uh, of of, uh, of 1 Timothy, you'll see that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so Timothy is not under uh, the influence or the direct influence of the Apostle Paul. He's not calling all the shots right now. Timothy has been given this great responsibility. And I don't know if you can ever, if you've ever felt like you're in over your head, but I tell you, when you're a young man in the ministry, at first you think you have it all figured out until you realize somebody asks you a question you don't have the answer to. And then you realize, man, I I don't have this. I, I don't have all the answers here. And no doubt I feel like Timothy would have been very nervous. Uh, surely I think he was a great man of God and I think he was spirit led, but there's still some intimidation knowing that you're accountable for the, for the spirituality of a church moving forward. And, and you're the under shepherd and you're going to give an account to the Lord one day for how you led those people. And there's a great responsibility and a great burden that accompanies that, that few in this room understand. It's, it's a huge weight. And that's what Timothy's dealing with. He's dealing with the fact that he's all by himself. And that's why Paul is writing him. He's telling him, hey, Timothy, here's some things I want you to do. And in verse number uh, uh, three, it is, you see a word there. And the Bible says that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And that word charge is interesting there because... At least, I know for a fact that today I counted five times in the book of 1 Timothy where Paul uses that term, I charge thee. I charge thee, Timothy. 
And when I did some research on that word, what I found out is charge in the Greek would mean a, 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 a command from a higher ranking officer. Now, I have never served in the military. Uh, I was terrible at paintball, so I thought turning them into real bullets wasn't a good idea. And so I never served in the military. However, I have been on church staff before. And I know this, when preacher tells you to do something, you just do it. It doesn't matter what you had on your schedule that day. It doesn't matter what your plans were. If preacher says, hey, let's go grab a bus, we go grab a bus. If preacher says, hey, you need to call the plumber, guess what you do? You go call the plumber. It doesn't matter if your tooth's hurting. It doesn't matter if you have a doctor's appointment. If preacher asks you to do something, you just go do it. And I think, even though I've never served in the military, I do understand the way it works. When you're CO, because I watch military programming... When your commanding officer tells you to do something, how much freedom and liberty do you have? I would, I would just assume, based upon all of the really accurate war movies I've watched, that you do it. You just do it. And that's the sense of this word, I charge thee. And as I got to studying that, I thought, is not Paul telling Tim- Timothy, hey, Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith. You know what you might need in battle? Marching orders. These two go hand in hand. I charge thee, Timothy. What he's saying is, Timothy, you're fighting a daily battle and you're in warfare in the ministry. And so here's some marching orders your commanding officer has for you. And these are the... Uh, these are the commanding, uh, or these are the orders. Number one, to fight for truth. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18. The Bible says, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We don't know much about Hymenaeus and Alexander, but what we can assume from the passage is they were shipwreck victims. They had once been given a pure faith, a pure doctrine, uh, and yet they erred from that. They accepted lies and fallacies and hypocrisies and now they were peddling it as their own and they were false teachers in the church and and Paul says they've shipwrecked. They've gone off course. They, They went their own way. And his charge is, Timothy, not only stand up for the doctrine but make sure the doctrine is right in the church. Fight for truth. 1 Timothy chapter Uh, Four, if you look in this book, you'll find a few things that had erred in in the church. The Bible says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, 
having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And you say, Brother Andrew, I just don't know how some people could teach some of the abominable things I've heard taught in churches before. I, I don't know how some could teach these things. Well, I can tell you right now, because they're deceived by devils and their conscience is seared so that the Word of God doesn't even effectually work in their life anymore. And the way that the Bible speaks to you, it doesn't speak to them anymore. And the Bible says that the, the, at least two of the things that they were dealing with was, number one, forbidding to marry. There was men in the church who had begun to uh, promote the idea that if you could abstain from marriage, you would be more spiritual. And that in, in abstinence from marriage, you would uh, set yourself aside for God. And He was to be your primary focus. And He was to be the one that your life was to be lived for. And, and when you married a wife, you would just entangle yourself with other commitments. And God was to be Lord. And you should not be in subjection to any other thing. And this was what they were teaching. And right here, Paul, uh, he says, that's crazy. He says these people are pre preaching and teaching this, but it's not wrong. You say, Brother Andrew, that doesn't really happen today. I actually believe that the Catholic Church has promoted this idea through and through. In fact, their priests are not allowed to marry. They're not allowed to have a, a, a relationship with someone. And, and it's the same idea that you're somehow more spiritual if, if you don't have a commitment to uh, someone on this earth. And I, I'm just here to tell you that's foolish talk. Because the Bible says that the man of God, in order for the man of God to be qualified to be a pastor, one of the things that he must do is he must rule his own household well. He must rule his own household well. You know what you have to have if you're going to be a good household ruler? You have to have a household. I know that's very deep. But these people had peddled this idea that somehow in themselves abstaining from the earthly commitment of marriage, they were somehow more worthy of God's favor and blessing. And not only says that they were forbidden in marriage, but then the Bible says, and commanding to abstain from meats. And I have heard this taught that this was speaking of uh, old Jewish dietary laws and, and uh, going back to the Mosaic law. And I think that certainly could be applied here. But today, if unless I've ran into one man in all my years of door knocking that actually held to uh, rigorous Jewish dietary laws. You remember him, Brother Kevin, in Keene? We talked to him. We had a good conversation there. And, and uh, uh, so I've ran into one man. That's not too much of a common thing these days. But by the way, there is an entire holiday in a very successful and uh, popular religion that abstains from the consumption of meat. It's Roman Catholicism and it's the holiday of Lent. And what they do is, and somehow abstaining from these uh, earthly commitments, it's 40 days, it begins on Ash Wednesday, uh, runs for approximately six weeks, it runs all the way up until just right before Easter, and they're trying to spiritually prepare themselves by putting themselves in a, a self-inflicted uh, uh, place, and, and many of the people uh, withhold themselves from meats. By the way, Roman Catholicism is not new. And by the way, Roman Catholicism will be here in the book of Revelation. 
And I even believe that what you saw in the early Pharisees was the the earmarks, the beginnings of Roman Catholicism. I think it's there. It looked like Christianity. It It seemed like Christianity. But there was one significant difference where Christianity depended all upon God. Catholicism and Pharisaicalism depended on what man could do to impress God. And in both of these situations, abstaining from marriage and abstaining from meats, what they were saying was they had adopted a religion of legalism. Now, we get that word confused, by the way. Uh, Independent fundamental Baptists have been called legalists for years. But there is not one thing that I do in my life to earn my salvation. All I've ever done to earn salvation was simply beg God for His mercy and He gave it to me. And legalism, by definition, is putting yourself in a place or doing a certain task so that you might earn your salvation. And and that's what these men had done. They were legalists. And and, and Paul's saying, Timothy, you're going to have to fight for right truth. You're going to have to fight for the truth. Church, are we willing to fight for the truth? If this book says it, there is nothing compromising about it. We cannot compromise on it. I don't care how much television promotes homosexuality. We cannot compromise on truth. I do not care how much television promotes the idea that somehow you are what you want to be and, and your gender is relative and actually everything's relative. There's no black and white. It's just kind of all gray. The Bible disagrees with that. And so we must fight for truth. And that's what Paul told Timothy to do if he was going to fight, fight for truth. Now, if you want to know how to fight, study the ministry of Jesus. Don't look at the ministry of Jack Howells. Don't look at the ministry of name your favorite preacher. If we're going to fight, let's fight like Jesus. And we've got to be careful that the words that we say are always seasoned with grace. We've got to be careful that our tone of uh, uh, hatred for sin does not come across to sinners as hatred for them. We must study the ministry of Jesus and, and exemplify the, the attitude of Jesus if we're going to fight. But not only do we fight for truth, we fight for right. I say, hey, but Brother Andrew, those might as well be the same thing. But they're not in this passage. I believe truth is right, but right is not always truth. See, for verse number 21, the Bible says, I charge thee, this is the second time we saw that phrase, well, actually third, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Fight for right. And there's, uh, chapter 5 is a very unique chapter Because it begins in verse number 1, as all chapters begin with verse number 1, by the way. If you didn't know that, verse number 1 usually begins most chapters. They they have a bigger letter at the beginning of them, but usually that indicates verse number 1. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, and the younger as sisters with all purity. Now remember, this is Paul's advice for Timothy on how he is to lead this church and help this church. 
how he's to go in and encourage and, 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 and even and sometimes kind of reprimand people. And this is his advice. And the first thing Paul says is, hey, Timothy, why don't you just treat everybody fairly? Did you know treating people fairly is right? Did you know judging people upon uh, uh, the color of their skin or, or the age that they are or the social class that they are and judging them and somehow treating them differently or being partial to one than the other or a visitor comes into our church and we say, oh, they're wearing nice clothes, I bet they'll make a good tither as opposed to the homeless man that comes and we say, ah, he probably doesn't have much to offer the church. That is not right. And I believe what the Lord is, uh, through the Apostle Paul, is telling Timothy to do is treat people right. But not only that, he is teaching Timothy that he should fight that people would live right. Because what you'll see is, the Bible says here, rebuke not an elder. Okay, that word rebuke is very unique. It's unique in the sense that it means to strike at or to strike upon. It literally speaks of lashing out, sometimes verbally, sometimes physically. But that word, rebuke, means to strike. Now, if you go down to, let's just say, verse number 19, the Bible says, Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. I think that's a biblical pattern. Don't believe the first guy that comes up to you and says something. If, if maybe there's uh, two or three that say the same thing, that's where we need to become very serious about the matter. And then verse number 20 says, Them that sin... Now remember, he just mentioned elders in the previous verse. Them that sin rebuke before all. Now, this word does not mean the same thing. In fact, the rebuke in verse number 1 is the only time that word is used in Scripture. This, this word is the more commonly used word. And this word means to find fault with one and correct. And that makes sense when you read it in context that them that sin rebuke for, uh, before all that others may fear. By the way, it is never God's will that somebody would come to a church and be comfortable living in sin in a church and we all just look at it and say, hey, it's all right, just keep on doing what you're doing if it's convenient for you. That's not God's will. In fact, there's a system in place in Scripture whereby church discipline ought to be implemented and it is at the testimony of two or three as a brother's caught in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such in one. And, and that's the biblical pattern that, that folks wouldn't be comfortable living in church, living in sin. I hope to God that the preaching around here is hot enough that people cannot be comfortable living in sin. And here the Bible, after just telling Timothy, rebuke not an elder. Do not strike an elder. Do not lash out at an elder. Skipping down to verse 20 says, but you should rebuke them if they're wrong. And you should rebuke them so that others would see it and they may also fear. So which is it, Paul? Should we rebuke them or should we not rebuke them? Well, I think the lesson's clear it doesn't matter what age you are in church. You ought to be living right. You set a testimony and an example before our community. We got those bumper stickers the other day, those windows decals. By the way, mine's on my truck. I'm not seeing many others, though. But we got those windows decal. You know what my biggest fear was? 
man, I hope our people are good drivers. I don't want them cutting folks off in traffic and the whole community thinking, man, Joshua Baptist Church, I cannot stand them. But we are, we're testimony before our community. And, and here I think scripture is teaching us that no matter what age you are, and I think the biblical pattern is that the younger should always honor and respect the older. Uh, gray hair is actually a, 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 an ornament of wisdom and experience in years. and We ought to respect the older generation. But there is never a day where you outgrow the responsibility to live right before God and before man. And that's what he's teaching. Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to fight so that people will live right. But then second, uh, I guess this would be thirdly because I added one that wasn't in my notes, but you don't have to worry about that, that people are treated right. Verse number three, this, like I said, this, pattern, uh, this uh, verse is very unique, or this chapter is unique because it speaks about respecting elders. It also speaks of, uh, uh, to Timothy to respect women. And by the way, verse number two says, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. The man of God ought not be flirtatious with women. I read an article today, 700 documented cases of, of, of uh, some sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. And I'm not just saying that because it's in the Southern Baptist Church alone. Hey, that can happen in independent fundamental Baptist churches. And the problem we've had is, is men of God or so-called men of God who were willing to flirt and willing to, to hug and willing to be okay putting themselves in vulnerable positions. And, and that's why Paul says, with all purity. Timothy, view them as mothers and view them as sisters, but you better be pure with the relationships of the ladies in the church. Hey, by the way, I don't think that just extends to just uh, pastors. I think our men in our church ought to respect the ladies in our church. View them as your mother, view them as your sister, and care for them and love them and encourage them. But there is lines that are clearly drawn. We all must do it in all purity. But then verse number 3 now jumps from how we are to view everybody. And it says, honor widows that are widows indeed. What a unique verse. Honor widows that are widows indeed. And from what I can tell, verses 3, oh, down most of the way to, uh, through the chapter, uh, about numbers uh, 15, we have a pattern for how the church is to take care of widows. And it even gives definitions of widows. It even tells us uh, uh, what circumstances the church is to provide care for these widows. And, and you can do the study on your own. A, a few things were that if the church was going to care for a widow, uh, the, a few requirements that widows should meet would be that there would be no family to care for them. Amen. You know why? Because it's the family's responsibility to care for the widow. If their dad passed away, it's the family's responsibility to step up in that situation. By the way, honor thy father and mother literally means honor financially, honor with every physical need they have. Honor them and respect them and love for them. And so they shouldn't have any children. They should trust in God and labor in prayer. Verse number five, I'm not making these up. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and and day, what I believe that means is that her trust, even though the church might be supporting her and caring for her, her trust ought not ever somehow transition to, oh, the church will pay my bills. 
but that her faith and her trust would always be in God. And that each week she would pray that God would meet her needs because God was only using the church as an instrument to care for her. It was always God providing. And so she should also not, uh, there should be no family to assist them. She'd trust in God and labor in prayer. And then uh, in verse number six, she should live a meager and godly life. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Speaking of overabundance, of needing a lot of things to satisfy her flesh, she's living in pleasure, but she's not living life at all. She's missed it. She's dead already. She doesn't know what life is really all about because she thinks that the real meaning of life is getting and, and having and wearing and being, but it's not. It's always about God. And so there's very unique uh, structure to how the church was to care for the widows. And then it goes into the elders. Now, I believe that in this case, the Bible is speaking of uh, Teachers and leaders in the church. In verse number 17, the Bible says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. I think we can understand that that verse is speaking of those in the church who still need care and they've given their life to studying God's word and teaching God's word and, and reaching people with God's word and, and they need to be cared for by the church and they're worthy of that honor because they gave their best years to the church. It's sad to see, and you can ask many preacher's kids around the nation who watched their father give his entire life to one ministry only to see that ministry when they need a new pastor totally abandon that old pastor. And you say, well, he should have been saving up. Have you checked what some, some of these pastors get paid? I mean, it's a miracle if they can afford Taco Bell at the end of the week, much less putting back in a 401k. Now, I'm thankful to say that is not the case at our church, but that is what this passage is addressing. That the church ought to care for elderly men who have given their life to teaching and preaching in the church. That's why we took care of Dr. Ha uh, Dr. Watson. We still take care of Dr. House. Speaking of Dr. House, he gave me these shoes and they are so tight, I can't even feel my feet tonight. <laughs> well, that's all right. I appreciate the gesture. But, but that's why this church supported uh, Dr. Watson. That's the reason is because he gave his best years in the ministry and, and, and this church reads this passage and understands this passage appropriately. And the lesson that we should learn is not only should people act right, but the church ought to treat people right. It's amazing to see people come in off the street. Probably happens five or six times a week, every week. People come into our church, come into our offices and say, Hey, I've fallen on hard times. I got a job interview in Oklahoma City and I ran out of gas. I was coming from San Antonio. And I think to myself, when you were putting in applications, did you realize there was a zip code thing on there? Do you know you could apply for the Best Buy closer to you than the one that's in Oklahoma City? But they always, oh, I'm on my way to a job. Uh, and I have the job, but I don't have any money. This happens every week, multiple times a week. You know, I tell them, the church owes them nothing. You say, Brother Andrew, that's cold. Don't you love them? Don't you, don't you want to be a help to them? In fact, I had a 
two and a half hour conversation with a young man the other night, who, by the way, I entirely and totally believed. I think he's a, a man that's trying to do right and be right, and I hope to have him in Sunday school class next week. But, but I care for these people. But there are so many widows in the modern church that don't even fit the requirements to be supported by the church. Why would we support somebody off the street that we cannot validate, validate their story? We cannot verify. Some of them come in with folders to prove their story. Here's my uh, job uh, application. Here's the email they sent me back. I mean, and your heart breaks for them. But it is not the church's responsibility to help humanitarian causes alone. None of this matters if we're not reaching people with the gospel. So our church's responsibility that, uh, is responsible that people that come in these doors would be treated right. So you've got to fight for truth. You've got to fight for right. Then thirdly, I believe in 1 Timothy 6, we'll find you've got to fight for the gospel. Verse number 13, the Bible says, I give thee charge, in chapter 6, in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I think what that passage is teaching us is that Timothy, and if you read the passage and you read the book, you'll find that there are so many ministry distractions that Paul closes it out and says, but my, my biggest charge, the first command of every preacher is that they would preach the gospel. You'll get so bogged down in the administration of the ministry, you'll never have a chance to actually administer the, uh, the ministry. <laughs> You get so bogged down in the day-to-day that Paul's saying, now I know I've given you a lot of orders. You've got to fight for truth. You're going to have battles with older men and, and you're going to be right and you're going to know what good doctrine is and they're going to look down on you and they're going to criticize you because you're just a young man. You've got to fight for truth. And then you're going to have a lot of people in the church that want to be supported by the church. But, but these people need to be treated fairly. They need to be treated right. And, and if somebody else can care for them, they ought to care for them. But, but the church will care for people and the church should take care of these people and and people should be treated right but at the end of it all he says timothy i charge thee fight for the cause of the gospel it is the most important purpose of the church i believe the church has many reasons for existing i think number one god wanted it to exist it's not man's creation it's the lord's I think also it's good that we would come together as uh, believers and fellowship and support one another. But the number one mission of the church is to reach the lost for the gospel of Jesus. I think that's why Paul closed it out this way. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. When I hear this and I think of what Paul was trying to do, I'm kind of reminded of those people that go run marathons. By the way, if you run a marathon, you're just awesome. Because that does not sound appealing to me at all. I see these people with bumper stickers on their car and it says 26.2. And I think to myself, I bet I can order one of those stickers and not have to do the 26.2. 
I think my sister, man, right now she's running like crazy. And she, man, she's super in shape. And I think to myself, I have a shape. She's in shape, but I have a shape. But I think about these people that run marathons and they're so busy competing and they're so busy running the marathon that there has to be people on the sidelines. Many times it'll be their family. Sometimes it'll just be fans in some of the bigger races. But there'll be people on the sidelines who in the course of their daily activity or in the course, in this case, of them running the marathon, somebody stands to the side with a cup of water. And now they need that refreshment. They need what you have, but, but you're not in the race. But you're, you're trying to put it in their way so that as they run by, they can grab the water. Christian, that's what we are to do. As people run the race of their daily life, we ought to put the message of Jesus right in front of them. And we ought to say, take a drink of this water because the water that this earth provides will leave you longing still. But there is a living water that once you've had, you'll never thirst again. And that's the responsibility. We've got to fight for this. So many people fight for pointless causes, but there is nothing worth fighting for more than battling over the lost souls of man. So he says, we've got to fight. And then uh, uh, thirdly, I guess this would be fourthly, I think. I'm just confused. We had two last week. We have two this week. Fourthly, we've got to focus. Brother Andrew, you took over 30 minutes on that one point. I've got good news. This one doesn't take that long. This one is much shorter. But we have focus. Focus. 1 Timothy chapter number 6 Verse number 12, the Bible says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. I read my Bible so strangely, but when I read things like this, my mind just tries to comprehend how it could say something so difficult and how I'm supposed to understand it. Lay hold of eternal life. Now, if you told me, Hey, Brother Andrew, lay hold on this microphone. I'd say, okay, got it. What did I do? I I laid hold on the microphone. I I grabbed it. I took it. I, I laid hold on the microphone. But the Bible here is saying, lay hold on eternal life. Everybody just on three, go ahead and try that. Lay hold on the eternal life. One, two, three. What do you do? Eternal life. Here's what I think. Lay hold on eternal life. What does it mean? How do you grab something that is intangible? How do you, how do you take something that isn't there? You can't grab the wind. You can't bottle it up. You can't take that. How do you grab something that is not visible in front of you? It's not seen, felt, heard. It's not sensed in any way. But yet the Bible instructs us, lay hold on it. Here's how you grab things that are not seen. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. When you can't see it, when you can't feel it, when you can't taste it, when you can't sense its presence in any other way, faith proves its validity. Faith proves that it's real. And faith is the hands by which you lay hold on eternal life. 
Faith is how you see this. You see, faith is the only way that we can grab uh, uh, what God wants us to do. Faith allows us to put our desires in the backseat and put God's on the forefront. Faith allows us to tithe and somehow make sense that 90% can go farther than 100%. Faith is what allows us to come to church and, and think that some guy getting red-faced and yelling at us and slobbering all this thing. By the way, you don't want to shake my hand. I have to come up to this thing every week. This thing's probably nasty as can be. But see, faith is what allows us to trust that when we come to church, it is a better investment of our time than any other thing in this world. Oh, sure, I love fishing, but I'd rather come to church and go fishing. I've never gotten skunked when I come to church. I've had, some, I, I, I've had to lie about how good my fishing's day, fishing days are. I never have to lie about how good my days are when I come to church. I get to come to church and worship God. Well, how do I get excited about that? How do I see that? How do I lay hold on that? Through faith. Faith is what allows us to study the word of God and understand that somehow God's omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence was bottled up in pages of scripture and we can understand the, uh, the thing that is uncomprehendable. We can understand God's mind and will for us and it is only by faith we can grab hold of these things. Faith is not something that the Christian utilizes only to get through the hard times of life. Faith is best exercised daily so that in the hard times we have a strength to support us during the weight of the difficult times. See, faith ought to be utilized every day. It's something we wake up and we look to God in faith and say, God, today I die and you live through me. Today, God, I can't do what you want me to do. So, Lord, by your grace and by your power, I'll submit to you. And it is only through faith that even that prayer can be prayed. The Bible says, for only by faith can a man please God. We ought to be like the disciples and we ought to pray, Lord, increase our faith. For if we're going to take hold on eternal life, it will only be through the application of faith in our daily life. It's going to be living tomorrow with an eye of faith. That when we look at the things of this world and we look at the things of heaven, we cannot compare them oh, in our carnality. We must compare them in faith. We cannot compare them as the natural man, but we must compare them as our spiritual man. And we must look to God and say, by faith I accept the promises of the word of God. It is by faith. By the way, you don't have to see things to make them real. I was reading a story of Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby authored over 9,000 hymnals in her life. She wrote her first poem at eight years old. Fanny Crosby, when she was just two months old, became ill. And a, the family doctor was out of town and a guy posing as a certified doctor came in and replaced him. And he suggested that to help her with her sickness... Uh, mustard hot compresses would be placed on her eyes. It was a common practice back then. It was often uh, used to promote healing. And uh, uh, it's oftentimes they'll burn and leave an irritation where it was applied. But this man thought it was a good idea to put compresses of mustard on Fanny's eyes. And soon enough, the illness went away, but the treatment that this fake doctor had administered left her blind. 
At eight years old, Fanny wrote her first poem, and it reads like this. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Eight years old. She went on to pen over, as I said, 9,000 hymns. In fact, she had to write under pen names so that the whole hymnal didn't have just her hymns in it. She did so much. And one day a well-meaning pastor looked at her and said, Miss Crosby, I, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Fanny looked at him, said, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition... It would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first thing that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. See, she somehow had a faith that exceeds those that can see everyday life. She didn't need to look at a sunrise to build her faith. She didn't need to see something as wonderful as a a, a crop of mountains or, or see maybe the waves crashing into the coast. She didn't need creation to testify of God's wonder. She accepted these things by faith. And if anybody has laid hold on eternal life, it was her. Faith is not the ability to see. It is the ability to accept what we cannot see. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy... You've got to flee some things. You've got to follow after some things. Timothy, there's some things worth fighting for. Timothy, keep your focus on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life.